But John chapter number one, uh, this, the first 18 verses of John 1 is, is I would almost call it the, the front of the box of a puzzle. Anyone like to do puzzles at your house? We have any puzzle doers? Okay. Uh, we, our kids are just getting old enough to where they can do some puzzles. So we've recently uh, been doing those just with kind of cabin fever and things like that. And, and of course you break open the box and there's all the pieces, but on the front of the box is the picture that you're, that you're going off of before you put all the pieces together. And the first 18 verses of John is really kind of the front of the box to the rest of his gospel that he is giving you in, in a nutshell in this prologue of Jesus and who Jesus is and just trying to really not make this, this long case, but just tell you straight up, here's who Jesus is and you need to understand him. And then for 21 chapters, he's going to put those puzzle pieces together and he'll give you different real life uh, scenarios where Jesus did this or Jesus said this or Jesus died for us and, and he'll put all that together. But we're at the end of kind of this, this picture. We looked at the first half last week and we'll look at the back half this week. And it started with John 1, 1 was in the beginning was the word, right? And the word was uh, with God and the word was God. And now in verse 14, it's like a boomerang. It comes right back around to the word. And we'll read verses 14 through 18. So look at uh, verse number 14. It says, and the word was made flesh. This is, this is Christmas. This is the incarnation right there. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. That is in parentheses, which is important. Full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Well, let's just walk through this passage. Uh, I told you at the beginning, all right? I'll, I'll give you my best shot, but you got you to give me your best ear, okay? So don't glaze over on me. Don't, don't check out. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my best shot here. So here in these five verses, there are at least, there's, there's way more than six, but I'm just going to boil it down to six ultra important lessons that you can learn from these five verses in John chapter number one. And we're just going to walk through them piece by piece by piece. Uh, really, I struggled to, to boil it down to six. There's a lot more that I'd love to give you, but we'll leave it at this. So here's lesson number one. I think you could say it this way. The incarnation eliminates indifference. So this verse 14 starts with just stating in no uncertain terms the incarnation of Jesus. It says that the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things were made by Him, talking about God. And it says very plainly that this God, the Word, was made flesh. In the person of Jesus Christ, in His, in His birth on Christmas morn, you find that the Word is made flesh. And this is telling you just flat out that when you had Jesus, you had God in the flesh. And we learned last week that those, John's audience, when they heard the word, they would have understood the word, the logos, to be the, the one who holds everything together, the answer to life's most essential questions, that this is the word. And he says that this word took on flesh, that the eternal creator God now becomes man and he dwells among us. He tabernacles among us. You could say he pitched his tent with the humans is what this is saying. That God came down and lived with man and descended into the context of humanity. This is what Paul says in Colossians, that in Jesus dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That all of God was in that body. 
that God came down and took on flesh. This is a doctrine that John would write in 1 John, his, not his gospel, but in his epistle. And he says of this doctrine that this is one of the ways that you can know if someone is, is truly of Jesus or not. This is an acid test to know if they truly are Christian or not. This is one of the ways you can know is do they testify to the incarnation? Do they say that Jesus was God in the flesh? This is how he puts it. I'll, I'll read it to you. It's in your little uh, outline that you get in your bulletin. But he says in 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Okay, John, how do I do that? Just at random? No, here's how you do it. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist where you have heard that it should come and even now already it is in the world. He says one of the ways that you can identify if someone is a heretic or not, if someone is true to Christ or not, this isn't the only way. Paul will give some others in Corinthians and other places, but this is one of the ways you can know is do they testify to the incarnation? This is one of the most basic theological affirmations of Christianity. Is do, is do you say that God became man, he took, he took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ? And Christians can differ on a whole lot of theological issues, but this is one you can't differ on. This, this is one that you can't, you can't backpedal on. You cannot be of Christ and not, and not believe this. It, it's apples and oranges if you don't got this. And this is John saying Jesus took on flesh. It's an essential truth claim to Christianity. It's a way that you can know if someone's a true believer. But it's more than that. It's not just supposed to be theological information. It's supposed to encourage your hearts. And we touch on this all the time at Christmas. And, and, and we hit the implications of the incarnation. So I won't belabor this point. But, but one of my favorite ways to look at this is just to know that this, this eliminates indifference. That you can't look at God and think that God is aloof or indifferent to your problems when he chooses to come down and live among you. I gave this illustration maybe a year or two ago. I don't remember. It was around Christmas time a year or two ago. But I love the illustration. I think it beautifully puts the incarnation and what this means to us. And it's from back in 1964, there was a murder in Kew Gardens, which is in New York City. And uh, there was this girl named Kitty Genovese that was stabbed to death outside of her apartment complex. And she was, uh, she was stabbed originally, and she screamed. And she screamed, I've been stabbed, help me. And the lights in the apartment complex came on. And the assailant ran away. But when no one came down, the assailant came back and finished the job, and he killed her. And many sociologists have studied this to, to look at the indifference of humans towards the suffering and the malignment of other people. And when you, when you look at the incarnation, what you have is, is not just that God turned the lights on, but God came down. That it wasn't just that he saw, it wasn't just that he heard our cry, it wasn't just that he knows that we need redemption, it's that he was willing to come down, not, not at the potential of suffering, but knowing for certain that it would cost him his life. What we just sang about, that we praise the God of Calvary because there he took our place and he took our shame. And we'll never grow weary of that place because we never grow weary of his grace there. That, that it's you learn that because he came in the flesh, you, you can look at your suffering or your problems or why is this happening to me? And you can hypothetically come up with a lot of reasons, but don't come up with a reason that God's indifferent and he doesn't care because Jesus coming in the flesh teaches us for certain that he cares teaches us beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's not indifferent to us and to our pain, and he's not, he's not a bystander. 
He inserted himself into, into humanity to redeem us. Not, it's for his glory, for sure, but it's also for our good. To help us, because we could not help ourselves. He took the initiative, he acted, he came. Second lesson. Grace and truth are found in Jesus. This is simple, but this is what it says. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Parenthetically, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. We'll come back to that at the end. But you could read it like this. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. It's saying that when Jesus came and dwelt among us, He was full of grace and truth. When you find Jesus, you find that He's filled with truth and He's filled with with grace. In those five words, John can really encapsulate much of the ministry of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. Now, <clears throat> humanly, <clears throat> we typically lean one way or the other. Some of you are naturally, it's easy for you to be gracious, but it's difficult for you to give truth to others when they need, when they need to hear the truth. Some of you are really good at giving truth to others, but it's difficult for you to be gracious when, when others need you to be gracious. But you find in Jesus, you get both of them perfectly mingled together. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that if you want to find truth, you go to Jesus to find truth. He tells us later on, John will tell us that Jesus says that I am the truth, but you find that he, he, he's full of truth. That here is God in a body breaking into time and space. And when Jesus speaks words, it's not just the words of some other prophet or some ordinary man. When you find Jesus speaking, you find the voice of God speaking. So this is important. This is why we pay very close attention to the words that Jesus says inside of the Gospels because it's not just another guy. This is God talking to us. And you can find... You can find a lot of people that will, that will portray Jesus as one of many saviors or, or one of many good men or one of many religious leaders or one of many uh, prophets, but this is, this is not the case. John makes it to where that you can't have it that way. If, if, if you think that, you haven't read the Bible. This, this is either utterly crazy or absolutely true. It's one or the other. And what John says is, I'm making a very, very bold claim. This is just not some, some other good teacher. This is God in the flesh. And this, just this verse alone makes it impossible for Christianity to be some sort of a synchronistic religion that you can just mix it all in and just have Jesus and Buddha or Jesus and Gandhi or Jesus and Muhammad or, or kind of all of the roads lead up the same mountain sort of thing that, that you can't do that with Jesus. It's impossible. It's impossible. If you, if you understand what John is saying about Jesus and what Jesus will say about himself inside of his gospel, the only thing that you can say is Jesus the one and only or that's a lie, one or the other. It's one or the other. And John says when you come to Jesus, you find that he's full of grace and truth. This is going to be deeply important because he's going to play off of that theme here in just a moment. But I'll give you lesson number three. If Jesus is preexistent, then Jesus has to be preeminent. Now, you would probably never read verse 15 and naturally come to that conclusion because the, the, the language seems almost a bit tricky. But when you understand it, this makes complete sense. He comes back to John. He already gave us a commercial about John a few verses prior to this. We looked at that last week. And this is because he's going to give us a big, long passage about John the Baptist that we'll get to look at next week. But he gives us another little commercial about John. He says that John the Baptist bear witness of him. And John cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, that he that cometh after me is preferred before me. So John testified and said, Look, when Jesus came on the scene, this was, this was who I was telling you about. 
I know that he's coming after me, that I've, my ministry as John the Baptist has already been up and going, that it's been running. And here comes Jesus into his public ministry. And he says, the one that's coming after me is actually preferred before me, that Jesus is up on the pedestal, that I'm the pre-show and Jesus is the main show. That I've, I've told you this, that the one who's, who's trailing behind, he's actually the one in front. But then he says this, for he was before me. John, are you schizo? Was he, be, was he after you or before you? Right? Like, which one is it? You told like you say, he that cometh after me, but then you say he was before you. Which one is it? Now, what he's doing is testifying what we've already seen in the first couple verses of John chapter number one, that Jesus came in the flesh and Jesus was born a few months after John the Baptist, but Jesus existed a long time before John the Baptist. That this is, this is the eternal creator God coming in the flesh. This is why when Jesus talks to the, the, uh, the Pharisees and he tells them that about Abraham, and he tells them before Abraham was, I am, that I existed before Abraham, that they're both befuddled and really angry that he would say something like that. Like I was, I was around before Abraham was even born. Like th th this is how old I am. So this is, this is John saying once again the same truth that here is this pre-existent Jesus. John the Baptist understood this, that he was actually before me. And so because he's coming behind me, I can tell you that he is before me both in, in, in his place, in his prominence. So what, what John the Baptist understood is that Jesus was no ordinary person. That this is, this is the eternal God in the flesh. And because of that, he is on the pedestal. I, I, it's, it's not about me. It's not, it's not about my ministry. It's not about what I'm doing. I'm just trying to deflect you to him. And you could say it this way. If Jesus is preexistent, if Jesus is God, if he was eternal, if he's that, then he has to naturally be preeminent. If that's true that he existed before anything else was, that, that he created the world, if that is true, then this means that you can't put him in a category with other people that he has to be preeminent in your life. That if you believe on him and you would say that this is true, then, then this puts him in a whole, whole different category. He's not just another prophet or another sage pointing to God. He is the God that all the prophets and all the sages pointed to. And John the Baptist understood that, and John the Apostle understands that John the Baptist understood that, and he writes it to tell us, look, we all get this. We get who Jesus was. He wasn't just some, some good moral teacher. This is, this is why when it comes to these sorts of claims about Jesus, that I personally understand logically the people that oppose Jesus and why they do it, and I logically understand the people that are sold out for Jesus and give him their all. I, I can logically understand. I don't appreciate it or agree with it. I think they're wrong. But I can actually logically understand why someone who looks at that and says, I reject it, I choose to say no to that, I do not believe that, would in turn then say, I think that that's dangerous and I think that you don't need to teach other people that and, and that, that's some pretty bold stuff that's going to lead people straight. And why they would oppose it, I could understand why there are powers that be that want to work against Christianity, that want to dampen it, that want to suppress it because they're not believers, they have rejected Jesus and they don't want this message to go forward like that actually makes sense to me if you understand Jesus and you reject him it would make sense to me that you would work against him and you'd understand that this is big stuff it would also make sense to me that if you follow Jesus that you give him your all and you're sold out and, and he has everything and, and is I'm all in I get that I do not get the middle 
I do not logically understand the, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, uh, he's, he's my Savior, I believe what the Bible says. He's God in the flesh. He's eternal. He created everything. He, he's preeminent. I, I get that, and he just has this little portion of your life. I, that I don't understand. And that's not to say that I've never been there where, where, I, where I've been holding things back from God and struggling to give them, because we've all worked through that process. But I, I just don't understand people that say that Jesus is an add-on. That, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm alumni of Penn State, and I have a black belt, and I'm a Christian. They're all kind of in the same category. They're these little descriptors of my life. I, I just, I cannot for the life of me get that. I personally don't think that Jesus gets that. If you believe this, and this is true, then naturally he's in a whole nother world. He has to be preeminent. He has to be up on a pedestal. You, you, have, you have to surrender all. Paul got this. This is why he would clearly tell us in Colossians that Jesus, who's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That in everything, Jesus gets to be first, and, and that, is, that is how it should be. And you say, well, I don't know that John the Baptist really got this. This just said that he that cometh after me is preferred before me. Maybe John the Baptist in verse 15 here is saying that, you know, Jesus is number one, but I'm a close second. You know, his ministry is great. My ministry is great. His ministry is a little bit better. Absolutely not true. Just go a couple verses later to verse number 27. Here's John the Baptist speaking. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me. So this is actually John saying it. John the apostle was quoting him a minute ago. Then he says this, whose shoes latch it, I'm not worthy to unloose. When he's saying Jesus is preferred before me, he's not saying I'm kind of a runner up. You know, Jesus is my guy. He's first, but you know, I'm, I'm a good guy too. What he's saying is he's, he's in a whole nother category here. I do not consider myself worthy to tie his shoes. And if you understand what the Bible teaches about Jesus and who Jesus claimed to be, then that's a, that, that is a natural line of thinking. To say that, you know what, he is creator, I'm creation. He is shepherd, I'm sheep. This, this is not just, well, I'll give him part of me and he'll have, he'll have a little place in my life. Maybe he's prominent. No, 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 no. he gets to be preeminent. He gets to be first and he, he gets to be before you in everything. In all things, he gets to be before you and he gets to lead the way and he gets to lead you. Lesson number four. Jesus became like us so we could become like Jesus. Look at the next verse, verse 16. Of his fullness have, have all we received. So John's referencing back to the word was made flesh, full of grace and truth. And of that fullness, we have all received. What, is, what does that mean? So, this is meaning a couple things, I think. First, to receive him, you have to receive that grace and that truth. So you have to receive the truth that you're a sinner and that you need him and that you, you need him alone, that you're not going to fix things on your own. You also need to receive the grace that he came to save you and he offers you eternal life out of grace as a free gift that is freely bestowed on you and you can take it. You've you got to receive both the truth and the grace in order to receive Jesus. So part of that is true, but I think it's also mean that as followers of Jesus, we should too be full of grace and truth. 
that as those that are Christians bearing the name of Jesus, we should be sure that we dip our bucket into the heavenly well and that we should, we should follow his example and follow the model and that when we, when we come in contact with those that are followers of Jesus or those that are not followers of Jesus, that we should have grace and truth mingled inside of us that part of Jesus' coming in the flesh is to redeem us, to save us, to give us the adoption of sons, to, to make us co-heirs with Jesus. A part of his coming is so that we can not just enter into salvation, but then we can be conformed into the image of Jesus through, through the process of sanctification day by day by day by day. I forget which Christian theologian said that Christianity was a long convalescence, but whoever it was was right. That it's a, it's a long, long growth process over and over and over and over again. And we, we understand that the incarnation in Jesus' coming is for our good in that way. And ultimately, we get that and then we give glory to God because he's done that for us. This is exactly what Galatians 4 says. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman. So it's talking about the incarnation. Made under the law. To, why? To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus came made of a woman so that we could become the children of God. He, be he became seed of human so that we could become seed of divine. This, this is, this is a, a, huge, a, a huge truth that is just all through the Gospels. That this is the mission of Christ. This is why he came. He came not just full of grace and truth, but we receive that grace and truth. And as his followers, we want to bear witness of that. This, I would say, is a very hopeful message. This, this is great news. This is, I think, a message that our world needs. That in a day and age when many people feel despair, feel lonely, feel hopelessness, searching for hope in all the wrong places, Looking to the politicians, and it never worked. Looking to the self-help books. Looking to the educational system, whatever has, has disappointed them. You can realize that here is Jesus full of grace and truth. And we are allowed to receive him and to receive that as well. Then it says this. If that's not hopeful enough, it gives you these three words, which are just, this is the catch me out. This has been my favorite part of, the, of, this, of this whole uh, study the end of that, of that uh, verse there, verse 16, and grace for grace. I'm going to put it this way. Lesson five, in Jesus, you have an ocean of grace. So this, this word for is, is anti. It means in exchange or in the place of. And what this is picturing is grace taking the place of grace that's taking the place of grace that's taking the place of grace that's taking the place of grace. Think maybe a manna in the Old Testament that fell on a daily basis. The manna came for manna, for manna, for manna, for manna, over and over and over. That manna exchanged and turned over and turned over, and, and it came new every single day. And that manna that came fresh every morning, this, this is a, a picture into the grace that Jesus was, was full of that he now gives to us. And John says that that grace is for grace, like waves of grace crashing on the coast, just over and over and over and over 
over and over again. There's grace, and then when you think you've depleted it, there's more grace. And when you think you've run out, there's more grace. And when you think that you've messed up too, too bad, there's more grace. And over and over, when you're too lonely and it hurts too bad, you find more grace. And over and over, John is saying there's grace. There's an ocean of it that just keeps crashing in wave after wave after wave. There's grace. Amen. That's awesome. Like, that's awesome. This is not saying that the grace of God has a long wick. This is saying there is no wick. There is no end. This, this, in Jesus, who was full of this, who allows us to receive this, it comes over and over and over. One commentator said it this way. He said, God's grace is like the mighty Niagara. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? All right, most of us. He said, the grace of God is like the mighty Niagara, thundering endlessly out of eternity into our hearts. How awesome is that? That God would give us grace. Now, now we show grace sometimes, but our grace is limited, is it not? We mess up, we get frustrated, we, we cease to be gracious. Not so with God. Not so. He who is full of it offers it to us unendingly. This, this is a, a beautiful, beautiful truth. And this is meant to teach you that when you, when you understand this, when you understand that there's grace, 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 you don't endeavor to take advantage of it. You treasure it and you serve the one who has loved you that way. This, this isn't meant, Paul, Paul gives witness to this and says, you know, do, because grace abounds, do we continue and say, no. When you understand this, you treasure it and you want to serve the one who would do this for you, who would love you in this awesome way. And that's our Jesus. That's Jesus. Lesson six, last one. God didn't just tell you about himself. He showed you himself. Here's verse number 17. The law was given by Moses. And we know in Galatians, the law was a schoolmaster, was a teacher. It was meant to show us where we went wrong. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. This is tying back into even what, what John mentioned in the beginning of uh, verse 14, that we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. That what this is saying is that we had the law. We had the schoolmaster. We had, we had where we, it would show us where we were right and wrong, but we needed more than that, and God chose to give us more than that. Rather than just some instruction, rather than just some learning, he decided to show up in the flesh, and we get to see in Jesus Christ the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and we get to see God living, walking, talking, breathing, acting, interacting, uh, wrestling with certain scenarios, giving truth to people, uh, operating a certain way. We get to see God in the flesh working and we get to see a picture of, of God in the flesh. That Jesus is coming to show us the glory of God. Jesus is coming. We don't get to, to see God face to face, but in Jesus Christ, you get to see God in the flesh is what, what this is saying. And this is deeply important for a relationship because any relationship you have, you want to see that person. This, this is why we, we put our pictures on our social media profiles. Because in order to have a relationship with people, we want, we want to see them. Jesus is how you see God. If you want to know what God is like, you get close to Jesus. I get tickled at people as a pastor sometimes. People will tell you, you know, I'm just kind of searching for God. Tell, look no further. Jesus. Like right there. 
Just, just go to John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, any of Just start reading about Jesus, and you will see God, and you'll, you'll get to know God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. You have God in focus in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what John would say in John 14. He tells us about Philip. And Philip, here's, here's what Jesus says. Have I been so long time with you that, yes, thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? You looking for God, Philip? Look no further, bud. You don't got to keep searching. Why are you asking me to, to show you the Father? You see me. You're seeing God in the flesh. You're seeing me operate. This is what Hebrews 1 tells us. The beginning of the book of Hebrews leads with this. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, that means in a, a lot of different times and a lot of different ways, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. But he hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he, had, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is saying that God used to speak by the prophets, and he used a lot of different ways, but he chose in Jesus that Jesus comes, and now you get to see God who is the express image of his person. You want to know what God is like? You go to Jesus. You see him there, the fullness of the Godhead. You, you see God in the flesh. I read this illustration this week, and I thought it was fitting. There was a, uh, a farmer who, on kind of a cold, wintry day, similar to today, I guess you could say, heard some thumping on his, on his kitchen door, and he kind of went to the window and kind of peeked out to see who was at his door, and, and to his surprise, there wasn't anybody there. There was these little sparrows that could sense kind of the warmth of the house, and they were trying to fly into his house. And they're just kind of thump, thump, just kind of flying off the door. And he, and he felt bad for them, so he decided that he was going to go out to the barn. He opened the barn, he threw down some hay, he put down some little saltine crackers, like a little trail to the hay. And he was trying to help these, these sparrows come into the barn and get out of the cold and, and find some warmth. <laughs> but to his dismay, when he left the barn, the sparrows wouldn't go in. He had, he had somehow scared him. So, so he decided that I'll, I'll try some other tactics. So he decided that he would kind of go around and try to like corral them into the barn, but they just kind of flew away and they wouldn't be corralled. He decided to kind of throw crumbs at them to help them see that like, hey, this is good. I'm not trying to hurt you. And that didn't work. And no matter what he did, he could not get the sparrows to go into the barn that he had prepared for them, trying, trying to help them. But they were, they, were too, they were too scared. So he went back inside and there he thought to himself, if only I could become a bird. Then I could communicate with them. Then they would know my intentions to help them. Then they would not be scared. And the farmer thought to himself, who was a Christian man, I think I understand the incarnation a little bit better. And a man becoming a bird is far different than God becoming a man, admittedly. But in the incarnation, you get to see in a far more vivid way what God is trying to do, you, do to you and for you when he redeems you, when he offers you salvation, when he offers you grace, that you don't have to be afraid, that you get to see God, that you, you ultimately don't just get a message about God, don't just get the prophets telling you, don't just get some declaration, you get God in the flesh, you get to see him. You, you, get, you get to see 
how he lives, how he talks, how he operates. So I think it'd be fitting to ask this. One, who's Jesus to you? I understand that there probably aren't many people that, that traipsed out on a cold Pittsburgh wintry night who aren't Christian, who are, who are seekers. But perhaps, perhaps. So I think it's fair to ask, who is God to you? Resist the urge to say, well, I really wish they were here. The person who needs this, the person I've been witnessing to, they're not here. You're here, okay? So who is he to you? Is, is he a good guy? Is he a moral teacher? Is he a buddy? Is he your co-pilot? Is he the man upstairs? Or is he God? Is he your Savior? Is he Lord? And if he is God, if he is your Savior, if he is Lord, then what are you doing with him? If you never received him, I, I don't care how religious you are and how long you've been a member of Harvest Baptist Church. If you've never received him, then receive him. Give your life to him. Sometimes the people that are most resistant to give their life to Jesus are the people that have been around church for a long time. And this is not my notes, so I don't know why I'm saying this, but I'm going to roll with it. In my own personal life, I'm a church kid, grew up in kid. People thought I was saved, you know? That, that I was Christian, good, moral, da 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 I've been baptized, all the rest of it. Went to camp every summer. And that made it very difficult for me to swallow my pride and to admit that I was not saved and I was not a Christian and that I needed Jesus to save me from my sin. That, that was the biggest barrier that I had. All of the information about Jesus and all the things that, that helped me understand him was the biggest hurdle that I had to jump over. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you've been around church a long time and that, that's, that's part of the fabric of, of who you are. But you've just, if you're honest with yourself, you hear messages and you just, you want to put it in the back of your mind. You want to keep on going with your day. You want to get rid of it as fast as you can and not think about it because it scares you, but you've never received him. So if you've never received him, receive him. Give your life to him. If you have received him, then what are you doing with him? I, I would say it this way, and I'll close with this. If, if the flames of your faith are dying out, you can go to couples retreat. It'll be, it'll be a great time, but I don't recommend that for you to re-energize your spiritual life. That's not the number one thing I would give you. I, I wouldn't recommend that you read a book. The number one thing that I would tell you is that you need a reintroduction of a relationship with Jesus. I know you already have one, but, but it's very simple, honestly. It's what is your relationship with Jesus Christ like? If it's good, then I can promise you the spiritual flames are ablaze. If it's not good, I can promise you those are starting to die down. It's that simple. Bottom shelf. And if you feel like, you know what, I just, I'm struggling, I can't get a handle on this. I, the, the answer is not to, to white knuckle your behavior any further. The answer is not to, to try harder and, and to put your will into it. The answer is to get really, really, really close to Jesus. That's the answer. And I, I would challenge every one of you, no matter if you feel like you're on a spiritual mountaintop right now or if you're in the valley, no matter where you're at, I would challenge you this week Make it your goal to get closer to Jesus this week. That is a goal that every one of us could, could walk out of here with. To say that I want to get closer to my Savior this week. For some of you, it may, it may mean picking up the Bible and starting the New Year's resolution that you never started in the first place and starting to read and starting to get into it. It may be that you just, you get 10 minutes alone to pray because you know that your prayer life is dead as a door now and you haven't prayed in a long time. 
For others of you, it may mean that you take what you're already doing and you just kind of amplify that and you continue to build off of that and you, do, and, and you just draw closer to him some more this week. But I think every one of us could do that and we'd be the better off for it because that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. It's all about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I challenge you, I, I sincerely challenge you that this moment, seven days from this moment, that you would say, you know what, I'm closer to Jesus than I was then. You may not be where someone else is or where you think your, your spiritual grandmother is or, or whatever it may be. That's fine. But you be closer to Jesus seven days from now than you are today. Make that your goal, I challenge you, because that's, that's what it all boils down to, is to focus on him, to love him, and draw close to him. Pray with me this